Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. My guest today is Hilberto Rosas, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. We will be talking about his book, Unsettling, The El Paso Massacre, Resurgent White Nationalism, and the U.S.-Mexico Border, published recently by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you very much, Gilberto, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you because, as you might know, I've been a fan of your work for a while. Uh, I really enjoyed your previous book, Barrio Libre, and this book, in my reading, was written in a very different tone. So to start off, um, I was wondering if you could tell us how you arrived at this tone, and especially you when know, you opened the book by making clear your background as someone who grew up in El Paso, as an anthropologist, and as a witness. So I'm curious how these multiple positions figured into how you wrote Unsettling. You know, when I, when I saw that question, it made me pause. I guess in Barrio Libre, I was relying more on the subtextual elements of my identity. More, marking, I think, in my in my in my mind, then a, a, a more of a, rest, a wrestling with the academic theory that was, you know, kind of at that moment important to me. And. But also, at that point, also recognizing that I am from the border, and I, and I did say that over and over again in Maria Libre. But but this one, this but unsettling is so much more personal because when the horrible event of the mass shooting that happened in El Paso, well, when it occurred, 
I had just gotten back from El Paso and and and, it, and, it, and it's home. And as I talk about in, in one of the chapters, I, I, I was, I woke up or I was having lunch and I don't, I, and really, really lunch. And I, I remember I saw the news, you know, like the, the, the headline flash on my social media. And like, I just felt like my, 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 I just felt, I started to shake and I got on the phone. I tried to find my phone and I, Frantically tried to call my parents, and I and I just couldn't get through. So and then I you know and eventually I did and thank God they were fine. But they were on the highway and they they were you know they were they were unsettled. What was happening? You know my I, I remember my father wouldn't talk to me hardly at all. My mom was you know, simply reticent and. Uh, So, you know, as I, after the event happened and the 22 people, you know, were, were killed by this white nationalist, I felt a real import, a real, I was compelled to write about home. Following the leads of, you know, feminists of color, following the leads of other scholars of color who, who, who think through the import of how home affects subjectivity of the writer and the like. You know, and I, and, and I, I, I wrote it rather quickly because I'm, I'm of the opinion that we are, that we are on the precipice of a very dangerous moment in United States history. I think we are teetering on some really, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to engage in hyperbole, but it, you know, I just think there's a, there's a very uh, resurgent right-wing nationalist movement before us that is seeping into the universities, into daily life, into uh, institutions. I mean, the the, the the pulling back of affirmative action, the attack on women's rights, the attack on women's bodies, the attacks on trans on trans and queers' lives. I, I I I worry, and I wrote the book quickly and urgently, informed by you know, my my anxiety about my family and my friends in El Paso, about my deep engagement with people and activists from the border, from El Paso, and with the, the knowledge that even before this horrendous mass shooting had occurred in El Paso, there had been other moments of vigilante violence in Arizona, in South Texas, and the like, in San Diego, Tijuana, and for, for me, you, you cannot separate the mass militarized policing that has occurred, particularly over the past 30-ish years, and this, and the shooting. I mean, there's been some 10,000 deaths, and, and these deaths are, are 
are largely by people who, as other scholars have talked about, who are trying to cross the border by avoiding by avoiding the the border patrol or other militarized uh, policing apparatus apparatus apparatuses. Pardon me, and they end up in the environs, in the killing deserts. They call them Barrio Libre, and they you know they 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 suffer often painful, often you know, horrendous deaths. So you have 10,000 deaths already, and then you have the scene of violence. And for me, those two cannot be uncoupled. And I will say that that when I wrote my first book, Body Libre, back in 2006, well, not when I wrote my first book, Body Libre, which was in 20, it came out in 2012, I had undertaken research as far back as 2006. It was already you know, formations of, of, of vigilante violence occurring. And, and, and I just, you know, so that kind of urgency compelled the, the writerly style that you, that you read. And that's why I felt, you know, the, the, I needed to chart out how a city that my, that my, my, my ancestors came to as a site of refuge was put into the crosshairs of the white nationalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first I want to acknowledge that you know, you're know you sharing something very personal with us and with all your readers, and I thank you for being so vulnerable with that. Um, and you, know, you mentioned we're at the precipice of a particular political moment in the US. And in the book, I think you make the very important argument that this moment has historically been in the making for a while. So the El Paso massacre was not a sudden aberration. And I'm curious about the titular concept of the book, Unsettling, in relation to that. So you hinted at this a little bit, but how does Unsettling ground your argument? And what was at stake for you in thinking through Unsettling? I, I want to underscore what is at stake is a death in life of... of people who cross the border, people who live on the border, people who are from the border, and and other communities in the globe. I mean, the border is not just a a brown and white, a a Mexican United States formation. It's far more complex than that. I mean, you have the you know, the, recently you had the, the, the appearance of uh, Haitians, Cubans, Russians, you know, at the border. So I, I make the case in, in, the, in the book that unsettling, that, that the, the 10,000 deaths that I mentioned earlier in, in, in this interview, it 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 sets the stage for the white nationalist shooter. What unset what unsettles is how 
intensified and militarized border enforcement. Underpins this massacre. And I also make the case that border violence is foundational to settler colonial projects. And simultaneously, migration unsettles settler foundations to states. The, the, the repeated movements back and forth across borders, the arrival of people in mass trying to get asylum or to even just go to work, I think puts a settler imaginary into some sort of crisis. Yeah. Um, I want to pick up on what you mentioned about what is at stake, which is death and life of communities around borders. And, you know, for our listeners, you know, I think that's very intentional. So in the book, you draw our attention to the politics of death and life rather than life and death. So tell us about this um, reversal or reordering, let's say. How did it reframe your understanding of necropolitics? Okay. Um, as you already noted, it's, it is a necropolitical engagement, right? Um, I began thinking about about what I call necro-subjection many years ago. I think when I first met you, I, I gave a paper that, 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 that becomes eventually a chapter in this book. And Having just said, I, I was trying to avoid the theoretical debates that are, that are central to much of contemporary anthropology. I'm, I'm going to engage them right now. Um, it was a necro subjection is a way to 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 reorient Foucauldian questions of of. Of, of biopolitics or life and death. And in the book, my, my primary example of that is, is the discourses demanded upon um, expert witnesses in asylum cases and how you have to frame the migrant, the refugee, the asylum seeker as someone who is fleeing death, fleeing horror, fleeing, you know, the abject, fleeing the, the fleeing the, I think I talk about at, at length, the, the drug trafficker, the, the menace of home, right? And, and what I was, what I found important in the work of Mbembe and necropolitics is how death politics, particularly of, for him, in his case, in Africa and also from certain areas of the, of the, of the Mideast, the Palestinian terrorists in his terms, um, open up a way to, to 
talk about not life and death, but death and life. And in my mind, that kind of speaks to the demands of the of the of giving testimony, of witnessing in asylum cases. And in that same chapter, I begin by by juxtaposing migrants who who by avoiding the U.S. Mexico border patrol put put their own lives at risk, and hence the idea of necro subjection, the, the the production of subjectivity that has been exposed to death, and the production of even my my subjectivity as an expert witness as someone who has to to marshal the the demonic, the the the, the imperialist, the racist in order to get people help people. I don't get people. I, I, I help people get asylum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to speak a bit more about witnessing. So you mentioned your position uh, as an expert witness, but also, you know, throughout the book, you insist on bearing witness, saying you refuse to be a neutral party or a participant observer. But we also see other witnesses. We see, for example, lawyers bearing witness to bad news they must give to their clients or people like Father Mosher, who feels shame in witnessing torture. So I'm curious about how you think through these different forms of witnessing and yeah, what kinds of possibilities or limits do they pose? I think what witnessing, I mean, aside from, I mean, the, I think the critique of uh, participant observation of the neutrality of the observer, I don't think that's particularly novel to to my to the to the book. I mean, it's been readily critiqued by multiple trajectories in anthropology. Right? We, we, um, but what witnessing opens up is the politicization of that kind of knowledge. In other words, the the, the it, it it underscores that that be it an activist, be it an anthropologist, be it a uh, a reverend who who was that I talk about in the book who was in Chile during Pinochet then comes to the border to 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 take on to fight the good fight um, um, they're not there to produce neutral knowledge they are there to generate knowledge from testimony, from what they see, from what they feel, from what they experience, to for social justice. And I guess part of the elements of witnessing that I'm pointing to is just that. That that and again, this is hardly I don't think this is new at all. I I mean the Austin School of Anthropology has long maintained that I'm you know that I'm I, it, it, it was. It, it came into formation after I had already left, but I, I'm very much informed by those debates. Is it, it, the recognition that activists produce knowledge, and, and, and often anthropology anthropologists have, have to 
rely upon that knowledge in when they when they write and that the best kind of knowledge that we can produce is knowledge that is committed to 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 a social just cause socially just cause pardon me yeah and speaking of politics of knowledge production something i really appreciated in this book was your refusal to use the term migrant or to organize the book around migrant testimonies so can you speak to these refusals and the political work that it does yes i'll begin this way i i i really appreciate how audra simpson talks about refusal and how and how, we, and how our work is often in conversation around what the kind of uh, alternative kinds of knowledge and, and sovereignties that refusals point to. Um, but here I was doing it more, I think, in terms of uh, methodology. I, I did not, I feel, I feel that so much of the work on a Asylum in particular, but also on on migration generally, and I'm and I'm part of this logic. I mean, my my earlier work was about this kind of stuff, is extracting the stories of migrants. It is uh, portraying them as always victims, and I I want to before I elaborate on that, I want to underscore the the. the the centrality of uh, thinking around this by by uh, Corinta Maldonado, who, in conversation with me over and over again, always talks about, yeah, migrants are always are always portrayed as people who suffer. And even in this in this in in writing about a white nationalist who targets. Uh, who, well, let me back up. Even in writing about a white nationalist who writes a manifesto, a a, a screed on migration and the Hispanic, on the Hispanic, uh, quote unquote, invasion of Texas, and links it to the Christchurch shootings, other other massacres elsewhere in the world, even in engaging in that in, in in writing that book, I wanted to not. I wanted to be careful to, to not um, register the migrant as only someone who suffers, or the borderlander, or the you know, or the like. And indeed, to go back to my earlier point, by relying upon the work of Reverend. The Reverend, and I'm working, I'm working with Diana Martinez, who writes an interview in the book, who's an activist in the, herself. I'm working with attorneys such as Virginia Raymond, who is a brilliant scholar, activist, thinker, and runner herself. I, I can then show that despite what all that is going on, there are thinkers, there are activists, there are others there that are are not only challenging, but they're they're documenting the cruel effects. And again, you already already said this when when we began the discussion, Trump is not, 
that moment of violence that occurred during the Trump administration was the culmination of long-term processes. Right. And the testimonies that are in the book of practitioners and activists really attest to that. So I want to speak a little bit about those. So, you know, I think it was very a very bold choice to have those testimonies stand on their own. Uh, maybe, you know, taking a moment to breathe from uh, your mediation as an anthropologist. So I'd love to hear more about that choice and also your choices on where to place them in the book. I I, I mean, this answer to be a bit flip and, and go back to what I was saying before. I, I, I really wanted to signal, I really wanted to represent the analyses, the 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 the, the, the keen analyses, the keen documentation of these individuals. I mean, Diana Martinez, who writes, a, you know, on a, a, a very nice and compelling interview on white supremacy in El Paso. A long-time activist there, Virginia Raymond again, who I've already mentioned, is a holds a doctorate in English and a JD, and is you know very much engaged in Central American uh, migrant struggles, very much you know, uh, and their firsthand knowledge, as well as the, the reverends and, and others, it, it really just to me. I thought if I if I, had I tried to mediate, had I tried to like you know chime in, which is pretty standard in in most academic, in most intellectual work, um, I would get in the way, and I, and I just think that their work stands on their own, and you know Raymond's testimony to to family detention in Delhi and elsewhere again it's it's the conditions that lead to family separation you know i mean that's you, we go from the obama era of family detention which which me and other scholars wrote about in an op-ed I think 10 years ago, to family separation as a practice of state terror at the border. And what's even more incredible is that, you know, in many ways, it continues, but in more indirect forms and not as spectacularly today. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. Um, and I think perhaps that's sort of reflected in your attention to silence. So especially, you know, when you're thinking, uh, when, you know, we're hearing these testimonies about family separations, you tell us that bearing witness is to listen through silence. And I'm curious about... Um, how silences figure into your fieldwork or your writing? That's a good question. I, I'm just, I'm just really I'll answer it this way. I, I think, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a echo to what I was talking about. I, I feel very privileged to work with, to, to document, that's a, no, not privileged. I feel very, let me think this through, silence. It just, it just registers for, so much for me. It, I, it, it, I think it shows how activists or other st storytellers are collecting themselves, how they're, thinking through and how they, there are certain elements they, that they just cannot tell me. And I want to respect that. You know, I, I want to, I want to, and we're right to try to mediate that and say, you know, pause, you know, and they write that, write it up in a very, in a very formal way. I think, I think that it, 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 I would lose the, 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 significance the pain the the memory the the struggle to remember i mean i experienced that violence and i was in urbana champagne when the shooting happened i, I told you about that already i, I got I, I, and I was shaking and i was and then we have people who are on the border who are losing their children we have people who are just, I guess, I don't want to use the word trauma because it's the struggle to remember and the, and the struggle to forget what, what has happened. I also want to point to another key element of the book that I haven't really touched on yet. Actually, two points. One, despite this horrendous act of violence, despite the militarization of the border, despite the vigilantes that are now, you know, that, that, are, that, that emerge every now and then, border life is relatively normal. And, and, and I think that has been lost. And I, and I think I try to talk about the people crossing the border going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to disrupt the idea that border crossing should be patrolled. 
or, de or demands incarceration qua detention, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I remember parts of the book where you, you know, give us your memories from your childhood and maybe you're taking on the onus of remembering um, or, you know, talking about border life on yourself rather than putting it on, um, yeah, putting it on quote-unquote migrants that are often researched in this literature. Um, yeah, I, I'm also curious about fear, grief, and rage and how it led you throughout the book. So you already told us, you know, how these emotions came up when you got the news. Um, but, you know, they also anchor the book in particular ways, and I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I mean, I, I've told you about the fear. I mean, I told you about the, the, the viscerality of that moment, right? You know, the fear and the, and the rage. And it, it, there is a whole, what, body of work by feminists of color, by, by scholars of color on how, on how grief and rage and other kinds of strong effectual responses can generate new kinds of knowledge. I was I was uh, particularly thinking of when I wrote the book of the work of Renato Rosaldo, who I think opened the door for many of us who who write about the border today. His scholarship, who's now you know he's a very prominent anthropologist, not a used to be a Stafford and now he's in New York. Um, and he's also a fantastic writer, by the way. Um, he writes about grief and rage at the loss of his wife during field work. I was, I was also informed by the work of, uh, for example, Mariana Mora, who is a, a dear friend and a colleague who works in Mexico and who work on, on La Digna Rabia, you know, the, 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 dignified rage of the Zapatistas and how that kind of, you know, leads to challenging oppress oppression. As far as I've seen on social media, I know you've been giving quite a few book talks and some in El Paso as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the lives that the book is taking on already and how El Paso has been speaking back to the book. Yeah, that's a really important question. I, I've given a couple of, uh, what do you call them, book readings in El Paso. And I kind of knew that this would happen when I wrote it, that, that, you know, that I would have people in the audience that I knew would come. And... It informed in part why I wrote it in the particular way. I was trying to be more public facing than in Barrio Libre, and I really tried to subordinate the theory into footnotes and the like, although occasionally I, I do do my thing, but you know. Um, so it, it's, it's. One book talk brought out all these different politicians. Who came? I mean, 
and you know, and, and I found that interesting, right? Because and, and they wanted to, they wanted to hear what I had to say, but then there was this, there was this discussion afterwards, and it it ranged from people's memories of that of that day. I mean, I. I I remember there was a woman in the audience whose mother, I think it was, her mother was in the Walmart when the shooting happened. And so it ranged from that, you know, from the from the scene of violence, of, of actual violence, to memories of people being forced to sit in the back of the bus because of the color of their skin, you know, and so I, I I found that kind of how the how the community talks about violence, how they themselves they get to questions of racial nationalism, of, of white supremacy, of sitting in the back of the bus behind the line, a la Rosa Parks many years ago. And in, and, in, and in some ways, that kind of it, it goes to the question that I kind of wanted to push away from. I will say that I feel that in much of contemporary what many of the dominant voices today are caught up in a very binary idea of what is power and 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 racism. But I think works like unsettling, or Walia's border and rule, or Rana's uh, book on on how's escaping me. Janet Rana's wonderful book on terrorism, and and the Mideast remind us how racial how racism is mobilized. How white supremacy is integral to imperial rule, and how you know slaves, how native peoples and other populations experienced family separation. So yeah, I I, I do want to underline this. Much of the book um, are testimonies and witnessing about family separation, and and again, um, as I went, I was I, I had gone to El Paso well before you know Trump to just to write about El Paso was refuge that was, had been that had been the project. And then I went back in 2018, 2019 for the summer, and Diana Martinez, the activist, said, well, you need, you need to be considering right now, at this moment, family separation. And I, you know, I heard from attorneys and the like about what was going on. I heard how El Paso was actually one of the first cities to implement family separation before it before zero, zero tolerance had even been proclaimed, because those narratives are, are 
informed two chapters. I have a figure in it called the Euronex, which is talking about their, we're talking about how, well, in particular, by the about the the how another activist, Crystal Massey, telling the story of fathers whose children disappeared and, and who are no, they don't disappear. They're taken away at, by elements of the state. And Yoda uh, next speaks to a folkloric figure, a a a, a, a what has been cast as a scorned woman, you know, who, who during the age of colonial, one of the multiple colonialisms that Mexico experienced or Mesoamerica experienced, uh, loses her, her children. And there's always a question of whether or not she lost them or she, she committed infanticide, she killed them. And I, and I, and I kind of mobilized that figure to talk about family separation. Right. Yeah, thanks for sharing how you, but also your readers, have been pushing us to think in these very important ways. So my last question is, what comes after this book? What are you thinking or writing about next? That's a great question. I'm, I'm, be, I, I'm early on in a in a in a novel, and it's running with one of the running with uh, alongside and elaborate and speculating upon uh, one of the narratives from unsettling and I want to be very clear it is a novel it is not I'm not going to in any way try to make it an ethnography but it's um it's about a a young person or young people I think who who are at the border who grow up thinking themselves of a certain identity and they find out later on that they are actually the children of family separation yeah I, I, I also want to go back to to a question we didn't get, we didn't get to but I, I want to highlight this and I'm here drawing on on the on the keen analysis of my colleague friend Virginia Raymond it's often reported in the media that what led to family separation is zero tolerance. That is not the case. Zero tolerance. What is that? With zero tolerance has happened at the border before under under Bush two and under George Bush, whatever his name was, the, the buffoon president that we had many years ago. It would have it would have been it would have involved you know a series of punitive measures. You know, to take children away from their parents or other caregivers or their, you know, their aunts or uncles or, you know, to, to, to separate a chosen family is a practice of state terror. It has a deep history in the Americas and affects marginal, marginalized populations and I think, and I, and I, 
and it's in many ways, many forms ongoing. Right. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Hilberto. And you know, we'll be looking forward to thinking about family separations with your novel when it comes out. But for now, thank you very much for joining us and for your insights. Thank you. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of unsettling the El Paso massacre, resurgent white nationalism, and the U.S.-Mexico border, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.